Today's scripture comes from Galatians 6, 11 through 18. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in the order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning and welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see you, good to be with you. Uh, my name is Jonathan Moser. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are uh, glad to see you here today as well. Would you turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Had an opportunity to get away um, with Jessica last week. We were kind of celebrating a little belatedly our uh, 15th wedding anniversary, and so we had the opportunity to go down to Florida. And um, I realized when I got back that when you go down to Florida and the weather here is 20 degrees, nobody wants to hear about your trip to Florida. So that's all you're getting from me. You're welcome. Uh, but it is good, despite the cold, to be back with you guys today. Well, today we're finishing up our series in the book of Galatians. I hope it's been an encouragement and a blessing to you. I know it has to me. It, it is one of the books that has um, repeatedly, every time I've had the opportunity to go through it and study it, it has repeatedly challenged um, and really undermined, in the best of ways, my presumptions about the gospel. One of the things that I've found is that as I, as I continue on in my Christian walk, uh, the one thing that never ceases to change is that um, directly related to my spiritual growth and maturity is my understanding of the depth of God's grace. And there's so much more of God's grace to be explored and to be dived into than we ever take time to do. And so books like this are so helpful um, because they do not allow you to continue with your presuppositions about religion. They consistently tear down the religious structures that we build up in our life. They reveal the folly of our own pursuits. They reveal the folly of pursuing our own sin and our own direction. And they continually show us the depth and the amazing and the radical nature of God's grace. And I use that word radical intentionally because when you read the way that the Bible describes the grace of God and what it does in our lives, it truly is radical. If you think you understand grace, it is an indication that you don't understand grace at all. Grace is one of those things that the more we dive into it and the more we understand it, the more we realize we're just scratching the surface of it. And so as we come to the close of this book in Galatians, I hope it's not the close of your own study of the book of Galatians because there's so much to be gleaned here that we weren't even able to get into in the course of our series, but I hope it was an encouragement to you. And as we come into this final portion of the book of Galatians, we find this rather interesting statement right at the beginning in verse 11 where Paul kind of calls out what it is that he's doing through this letter. And, and to put it in a little bit of context, if you remember, Galatians is the first epistle 
that is written to the New Testament church. This is the first time that a church in the New Testament era has received a letter from the apostles. And so you can kind of imagine, as one scholar that I read this week, as he, as he kind of pointed out, you could kind of imagine an elder of the church of Galatia standing up in front of the congregation and reading as a whole this letter from Paul. And perhaps as he got to this section, held up the scroll, held up the papyrus for the people to see that what Paul was writing in this portion was in fact written in his own hand. And we find that, if you'll look with me at verse 11, Paul says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It appears that up until this point in the book, Paul had likely been dictating this letter as a scribe wrote down what he said. And according to all kinds of scholars, this was, the, this was a fairly standard practice at this time. To, to be a scholar and to write with a reed and papyrus was a laborious task. There was a lot of work that went into it. it. It took a lot of effort. It was a very specialized skill that was generally reserved for high-ranking slaves within a household or for designated scholars And so as Paul brings this letter to a close, however, he draws attention to this change. And I think there's a reason he does this. He says, I'm now writing to you in these large letters with my own hand. And there's all sorts of speculation, if you want to take the time to look into it, as to why exactly it is that Paul calls out that he's writing in his own hand. People have assigned a lot of motivation to Paul that may or may not be true. There's a lot of speculation as to what's going on here. Some people have said that this is related to Paul's thorn in the flesh. If you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul refers to his thorn in the flesh that God had given him as a means of humbling him. And there's all sorts of speculation that maybe Paul's thorn in the flesh was that he had very poor eyesight. Or maybe that he had some sort of physical disability. Maybe writing for him was a very difficult thing. That's certainly possible. After all, chapter 4 specifically mentioned that Paul knew the Galatians loved him so much that if they were able, they would have pulled out their own eyes to give it to him. Some say that Paul's writing here in his own hand just to emphasize the seriousness of what it is that he's about to say about the cross as compared to circumcision. But I'm, certain, I'm, I'm personally partial to an explanation given by Steve Reese, who's a professor of classical languages at St. Olaf College. And his argument is this. He says that Paul's large handwriting in this portion is likely his way of proving the authenticity of this letter. That this is Paul's way of putting a sign and a seal on the veracity of what it is that he had written. And that's my personal leaning because of the way that Paul started this letter. In chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Remember, again, this is the first letter that Paul wrote. This is the first time a church has received a Holy Spirit-inspired epistle from the hand of the apostles. And so it would follow that Paul wanted to make sure people were clear on the authority of what it was that he had written. See, the truth of the matter is, if anyone, myself included, gives you their opinion on any matter that opinion can only hold so much value. Even if you have incredibly high regard for somebody, if they're just giving you their opinion, you are free to ignore it. But if I can show you from the Bible what God says about any matter, that deserves your attention and your regard. And in the very same way, Paul is writing here, not just as an opinion columnist giving his take on the trends of the day, he is writing here with absolute God-given authority. 
He is writing as an oracle of God himself. And so lest anyone would be willing to dismiss his warning or claim that he in fact didn't write this letter, Paul is stopping to make clear that these are his words through the Holy Spirit inspiration as an apostle of Jesus Christ, made an apostle by God himself. And now look what he does with this authority. Verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now remember the context of what's happening here. The Judaizers, these legalists, had come into the church. They held to traditional Orthodox Christian doctrine, but they insisted as well on the observance of the law, specifically the observance of circumcision, and they said that those observances were necessary for salvation. In other words, to paraphrase one commentator, the Judaizers were saying that you must first become a Jew in order to become a Christian. And if you can put yourself in the perspective or in the position of the Galatian Christians, you can imagine that the motives of these Judaizers likely looked pure to those around them. They were coming into the church saying, we're proclaiming to you the very same Jesus that Paul proclaimed. We want you to know his love and his care. We believe in the crucifixion and the resurrection. We believe that Jesus Christ is the way to salvation. But you also need to be circumcised and you also need to follow these Old Testament laws in order to really know Christ. If you want to show him that you really love him, if you really want salvation then be circumcised and obey these Old Testament laws. Don't you want to know God, was their argument? Don't you really want to know for sure that you have salvation from him? Don't you want to be part of the family of God? But Paul reveals in this text their actual motivation, which was fear. And fear is always at the root of legalism. Either fear of God in the negative sense of that word. Fear because you don't actually understand who he is. You don't actually understand his love and grace. You feel like there's something left to be done or God is going to be opposed to you. Or fear of what other people think. And we know that that's what Paul thought because he said they do this in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now what's happening there? Do you remember how persecution started in the New Testament? Persecution didn't start at the hands of the Romans. It didn't start at the hands of the Greeks. It started at the hands of the Jews. Paul himself, before his conversion, had been one of those Pharisees who had hunted down and imprisoned and killed Christians. He was on his way on the road to Damascus to find a group of Christians, followers of the way, who were worshiping Jesus Christ so that he could imprison them, so that he could ultimately kill their leaders and try to snuff out Christianity in this region altogether. And after his conversion to Christianity, Paul and the other apostles were imprisoned, they were beaten, they were exiled at the hands of Jewish religious leaders. And so these Judaizers who came in proclaiming, yes, the gospel of Jesus Christ, but in addition to that, you need this Old Testament law, they were not primarily concerned with the souls of these Galatian Christians. They were not primarily concerned with whether or not the Galatian Christians were obeying what God had instructed them. All they were trying to do was avoid persecution at the hands of the Jewish leaders. 
And they could do that by claiming that they were continuing to promote the teachings of Judaism. In essence, their true argument was, if you don't want to be persecuted by the leaders of the Jewish synagogue, all you have to do is observe these Old Testament rites, and you can still worship Jesus, and you can still love Jesus. You just need to do this other thing as well. And the truth is, brother and sister, that we are going to face similar temptations to temper our message and to add to the gospel in order to make our faith more palatable to the world around us. Because whenever you start from a position of declaring that mankind is inherently and hopelessly broken and sinful and in need of an external savior, you are going to offend. The goal of the Christian is not to offend, but the goal of the Christian is also not to back away from that which is inherently offensive. Because to tell people that apart, apart from the salvation of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ in their life, they are destined for an eternal hell for rebellion against God is not a popular message. None of us wants to believe that we're all that bad or that we're beyond the ability to fix ourselves or that our lifestyle stands in opposition to a creator God. And so the temptation that we face is to alter our message to accommodate our culture. It's the same temptation that the Judaizers gave into and that the Galatian Christians were tempted with. So for us, the issue may not be adding circumcision to salvation, but it may be affirming and promoting lifestyles or behaviors that the Bible prohibits. It may be abandoning, abandoning the exclusivity of Christ or other essential doctrines that make people uncomfortable. And maybe embracing certain political or social positions and causes that are at odds with biblical Christianity. Because the truth of the matter is, the world is happy to entertain a Christianity that has been stripped of the necessity of Christ and the teaching of Scripture. The world is happy to have one more religious social club whose adherents are indistinguishable from any other community service organization. And many denominations and churches and self-proclaimed Christians have unfortunately been willing to exchange the truth for a lie in order to maintain their status and comfort. And in doing so, they forget and neglect the message of Jesus himself, who said in Mark chapter 8, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Listen to these words. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Paul is saying, look, you can choose what it is that you care about. You can recognize the beauty and the wonder and the majesty and the freedom of the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. You can receive salvation and stand as an adopted child of God. You can proclaim the message of God's goodness to a lost and dying world. 
or you can do whatever it is you need to do to try to save your own life. But, says Jesus, if your main effort, if your primary motivation is to protect your own life, to protect your own comfort, to accommodate yourself within a culture that rejects our Christ, understand that it is as if you're exchanging your soul for the approval of the world. And what could possibly be worth your soul? And in saying this statement, Paul is revealing the heart behind these sorts of motivations where people exchange the gospel, exchange the Bible for the accommodation of the world. And what he's saying is, do you understand that despite people's claims, they are not altering the gospel out of a sincere desire to be loving? Though they will claim that. And though they may have deceived themselves into believing it. People don't alter the gospel out of a sincere desire to be loving or to further acceptance, or to become inclusive, they do it to avoid discomfort and mistreatment. And why can Paul say that so confidently? Because it's never loving to withhold the truth from someone who is in desperate need of it. It's never loving to allow someone to continue in self-deceit in a pattern of living and belief that leads to their own destruction for the sake of simply affirming them. That is not love. It is self-serving. And so Paul's admonition to us today, 2,000 years removed, is exactly the same as what he gave to the Galatians. It's exactly what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8. He says, you live in an adulterous and sinful generation. And Jesus wrote that himself 2,000 years ago. All of us have this temptation to look back on the past with some level of, some level of desire, some level of rose-colored glasses. Oh, I was born a little bit too late. If I could have lived in the era of the 50s or the 60s or the 30s or the 40s or however far you need to go back in order to make yourself comfortable. We all have a tendency to view the past as being better than today, but the truth is the world is just broken in different ways across different eras. The world is just as broken today as it was 2,000 years ago. Jesus looks at his own surrounding community and culture and says it is adulterous and sinful. The very same as the world we live in today. And so Paul's admonition to us is the same as what he offered to the Galatians. Allow the gospel of Jesus Christ to stand alone. Don't add to it, don't subtract from it, because you can't add or subtract from the gospel without losing the gospel. You either remove its effectiveness or you remove its necessity. If you claim you need something else in addition to the gospel, you have just removed the effectiveness of the gospel. If you try to remove something from the gospel because it's inherently offensive, you have just removed its effectiveness, its necessity in the life of those to whom you're proclaiming the gospel. And notice then the connection he makes in verse 13. For even those who are circumcised, those who would claim, in other words, that you need to follow this Old Testament pattern, even they do not themselves keep the law. This follows the argument he's given since the beginning of the book. If you insist on obedience to one point of the law for your salvation, you are responsible to keep all of it perfectly for your entire life until you're dead. That's the expectation. He says, now they don't even do that, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. 
These Judaizers are telling, that, telling you that you have to obey the law, but they don't even keep it themselves. They're more concerned with a looking religious than they are with living in the Spirit, to go back into his argument in chapter 5. They're more concerned with having another notch in their religious belt than they are with seeing people freed from sin and the law. And I think there's a real lesson for us to be learned from Paul's approach and language toward legalists because at least anecdotally, in my experience within Christendom, most Christians have a tendency to extend the benefit of the doubt to legalists. And here's here's what I mean by that. When we encounter people within the context of the church who insist on extra-biblical standards, in other words, expectations or standards that are outside of the specific confines of Scripture, or when we encounter those who insist that others hold strongly to one specific opinion on a tertiary topic where the Bible allows for multiple orthodox interpretations, most Christians tend to presume the best of the legalist motivations. People who are more drawn to religion than Jesus will tend to tolerate legalists and ostracize sinners rather than take a gospel approach, which is to love sinners and to call out legalists. In other words, we have far too high a tolerance for legalism in the church and far too low a tolerance for those who are struggling in their spiritual walk than we ought. And I think we see that approach in the New Testament. That's why Paul has such harsh words for legalists in this book, but reminds the Galatians in chapter 5, for instance, to gently restore brothers who are caught up in sin. And what Paul reveals here is that the Judaizers' motivation for forcing the Galatians to embrace the law was not born of some pure, albeit misguided, attempted holiness. In other words, he doesn't extend to them the benefit of the doubt. What he says is their motivations are the same motivations that all legalists have. They wanted to be able to boast. They wanted to be able to draw attention to their own accomplishments, and they wanted to be able to lord their self-righteousness over others. But notice Paul's incredible alternative. Verse 14. But far be it from me to boast in the in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone in all of the New Testament had reason to boast, it was probably Paul. Paul is this incredible and captivating figure from his earliest days until his latest days. He's an incredible human being. Here's a man who grew up in an influential and important tribe in Israel. He was educated and trained by the elite scholars of the day. He rose to prominence in the religious class of Israel, and we find him leaning into his religious leadership as a leader among the Pharisees. And even then upon his conversion, Paul moves into writing about a third of the New Testament. He pens arguably the most rigorous spiritual work in human history when he writes the book of Romans. And he is the most effective missionary that the world has ever seen. 
I mean, this guy's resume is impeccable. He's accomplished more in one lifetime than most people accomplish in 20. And yet, in this particular moment, despite all of his bona fides, he says, I boast in nothing except the cross. Nothing. None of his human achievements, none of his religious accomplishments, nothing that he had done in terms of his work, either within Judaism or within Christianity. He says, I boast in nothing other than the cross. And the word that's translated boast here in our Bibles doesn't quite do justice to what that word actually means. The word Paul uses here means, according to John Stott, to boast in to glory in, to trust in, to rejoice in, to revel in, to live for. And begin to substitute those words into that verse. He says, I boast in nothing except the cross. I glory in nothing but the cross. I I live for nothing but the cross. I revel in nothing but the cross. I rejoice in nothing but the cross. Stock continues. The object of our boast or glory fills our horizons. It engrosses our attention. And it absorbs our time and our energy. In a word... Our glory, our boasting, is our obsession. Paul is saying, I am obsessed with the cross of Christ. And you find that in the writing of Paul. He never moves past it. He's constantly drawing our attention, our focus, our energy, our efforts back to the cross of Jesus Christ. There is a reason that the symbol of Christianity is different than the Jewish star of David or the Muslim crescent moon or the Buddhist wheel of Dharma. Our symbol is the cross, an instrument of death. We wear it around our necks. We tattoo it on our bodies. We put it at the top of steeples. It is the symbol of our faith. Because that cross is emblematic of the reality that the pre-existent, eternal, living God of the universe cared so much for the plight of his creation, so much for you and me, that he stepped into time and space and he became like us. He set aside his rightful position as king to become a servant to suffer the indignities of life in a fallen world, to experience the rejection of those he came to save, and to endure the brutality of that cross. And at the cross, Jesus took on his own sinless self the guilt and the shame of our wickedness and the wrath of an eternal holy God, wrath that had been reserved for us. He took it on himself and was abandoned by the Father, so that you and I could be forgiven, accepted, adopted, and glorified. And in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he imparted new life to those that he loved. The assurance of an eternity spent with him. And all of that was made possible through nothing we did or nothing we ever could do, but solely through his own generous, loving, electing grace. So, says Paul, what else is there 
to boast in, to glory in, to live for, to revel in, to rejoice about, to die for, other than the cross. In light of what Jesus did for me, my greatest accomplishments and my most selfless moments are like filthy rags. I have nothing to boast in, says Paul. But I get to boast in the cross. Because it stands there as the ever-present reminder of the life, the love, the dignity, the worth, and the purpose that God imparted to me. And so when I remember the cross, the world itself, says Paul, whose approval I would otherwise so desperately seek, has now been crucified to me. The things that others value now mean nothing to me because I've been giving, given something infinitely more meaningful. And notice then what the upshot of this belief is about the cross in verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Paul says these legalists want you to adopt all of the religious trappings of Judaism in order to receive peace and mercy from God. But circumcision, which is shorthand for the laws of Judaism, mean nothing to God. He says, if you want peace and mercy, walk by the rule that I put forward in verse 14, which is to boast in nothing but the cross of Jesus Christ. And when you boast in nothing but Jesus Christ, says Paul, peace and mercy will be upon you and upon the Israel of God. Now notice, he doesn't say upon the God of Israel, which is the normal formulation that we read all throughout Scripture. And our brain sort of autocorrects as we read it to that statement, to the God of Israel, but that's not what he says. He says, peace and mercy be upon the Israel of God. Now, who is the Israel of God that he's speaking about here? He spent his whole book undermining the claims of the Judaizers who insisted that people essentially become Jewish in order to become Christian. So is he now in this phrase going back to that Old Testament perspective and saying that ethnic national Israel is the entity upon which God is going to place his blessing? No, verse 15, he makes it clear. He says, all those who've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ is what he's referencing. Paul is saying in that phrase, the Israel of God, national Israel is not primarily what matters. What matters is the new Israel. The fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham that he would have children as numerous as the sand on the sea and the stars in the sky. A spiritual heritage, spiritual children. What matters is the new Israel that God is calling out of every tongue, tribe, and nation. Paul writes about this at length in Ephesians chapter 2. I'll read this portion for you beginning in verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, that's all of us, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, national ethnic Israel. You were strangers to the covenant of the promise. The promise given to Abraham did not apply to us. 
You were having no hope and without God in the world. That was our pitiable state. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself, in Jesus Christ, one new man in place of the two. No longer Jew and Gentile, but Christian. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near. See, Ephesians 2, 11 through 17 is directly related to Galatians 6. Because what he's saying is what brings us peace, what brings us into the same family as brothers and sisters of God is not our national or our ethnic heritage. It is our spiritual heritage. It is not the physical blood that runs through our bodies. It is the spiritual blood through which we have been washed. We have been brought into something new entirely. The hostility between Jew and Gentile was broken. So when Paul says, peace and mercy be upon you who believe and upon the Israel of God, what he's saying is all of us as a family, a new nation, a new ethnicity, a new people called out by God for his name, to his glory, for his purposes and his ends, we experience peace and mercy. What was once reserved for one small group of ethnically related people has now been applied to all of those who have found forgiveness and redemption and adoption in Jesus Christ. That is the hope and the confidence that we have, says Paul. And then he ends with this in verse 17, which I read in a very tired voice, though that may be speculation. From now on, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Now, I don't know if he's as exasperated as I just read it, but that's how it reads to me. He spent six chapters going, here is exactly what I mean by the gospel, and here's exactly what I don't mean by the gospel. So can we be done talking about this? And unfortunately, at the writing of this book, little does Paul know that he's going to have to write several more epistles addressing the exact same topic to churches all around this region. Why? Because we are a people who are prone to forget it. And as soon as we move beyond the gospel, we lose it. We always come back to it because there is nothing else to come back to. We never move beyond it. And the effects of the gospel and the realities of the gospel are what we are going to be delighted by and surprised by and feeling out for the remainder of eternity. That's how wondrous and how deep and how majestic the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And then he says, but these are the marks that I bear on my body. I bear the marks of Jesus. He's saying where these Judaizers aren't willing to suffer a paper cut for the cause of Jesus Christ. I have already in my young ministry experienced scourgings and exile and brutality. Abandoned by those who I once loved and who loved me. 
rejected by family and friends, beaten by countrymen, run out of towns where I once was welcome. That's what I've experienced so far. And he's saying, he's saying in essence, why do I do that? Because of the reality of the gospel. If it wasn't true, I wouldn't experience this. If it was as simple as just following the Old Testament law to avoid persecution, you can do that, but you've just lost the gospel. Don't do that. Do you want to know then what the true and real hope of the gospel is? It's what he's been willing to suffer for. And he refers to these scourgings and these beatings and this persecution as the marks of Jesus. Later on in his ministry, Paul is going to say, I count it a privilege to suffer. It's what the Apostle Peter experienced when at least according to history and tradition, when he was going to be killed for his faith in Jesus Christ, he was going to be crucified, just like Jesus Christ had been. And he said, I don't even deserve to suffer the same way Jesus did. Can you crucify me upside down? The willingness to suffer for faith can only come when the reality of that faith has been experienced when the reality of the wonder and the magnitude of God's grace can be, can be felt and experienced firsthand. And it's the reason that we come to the table of communion this morning. Because when we come to this table, when we partake of the juice or the wine, what we are remembering are the scourgings, the beatings, the whipping, the blood that flowed from Jesus' body as he suffered for us. And that not only did he suffer physically, but that according to Isaiah, it was that blood that was going to wash away our sin. That there was a spiritual reckoning happening at the cross. And when we eat of the bread, we're remembering that he gave his body. That the pre-existent, pre-eternal Christ gave up the glories and the wonders of heaven to come rescue his people that he gave up everything for us. And yes, it is a reminder too that there may be a day coming where we experience persecution. Where the reality of our faith is put on trial. Where what we believe is going to be tested. And so the question is, are we going to hold fast to this gospel? Or are we going to seek to accommodate? Let us pray, brothers and sisters, that our hearts and our spirits are strengthened by the reality of what Paul is telling us, by the reality of what it is we experience in this table, that Christ himself is present with us, that we're not going to experience anything he didn't experience on our behalf, but a hundredfold more. That he has not left us alone in this world to suffer, but that he is a friend who sits closer than a brother. That is in part what we recognize when we come to this table. And so if you're here this morning and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we're going to invite you in a few moments to come forward and receive the elements. We'll be standing up here with those elements as the music plays. And you can take those elements and return to your seat. If you can come down these center two aisles and go back around the outside, that'd be appreciated. Come receive the elements. And then please wait. We'll take those things together. 
And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, you're not sure what you believe about all this, we would just ask that you refrain from taking part this morning to consider the gospel that we're talking about in Galatians chapter 6. And in fact, to read through those verses that are in your bulletin this morning to remind yourself of the truth of the reality of what it is that we're given in Jesus Christ. And you can observe as we partake in those elements and consider what those things actually mean. And then we'll finish with a song. But what we're going to do first is we're going to take a few moments of silence, a couple minutes to be still, to be with God, to be with the God who is with us, to spend time with him and to enjoy his presence and to remember his sacrifice and his love. And then when the music starts, you can come forward to receive those elements. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for this letter. We thank you for its preservation 2,000 years after its writing. And we thank you that it is as practical and real and applicable today as it's ever been. God, what we've talked about today is not light and it's not easy. But what you're telling us is that it is so worth it. And so God, to the extent that we believe that, strengthen us in our dependence on you. And to the extent that we're not sure that we believe it, would you do the work, of re, the work of convincing us of the wonder of your grace, of your presence and your love? Do in us what only you can do. And for those who don't know you, would today be the day that you call them, that they hear the call in their life and respond to the work that you're already doing? We thank you for the table for the elements that we get to partake in, for the reminder of your presence with us, for the reality of what's happening in this moment. And we pray, God, that we would not take these things for granted, but receive them with joy and with sobriety. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.